Welcome to the Science Update Podcast. I'm Bob Hershon, and this is the podcast for December 14th, 2007. This week, science or nonsense? How do you tell the difference? We're constantly barraged with conflicting messages, especially about health. We deal with that fire hose of information by latching on to maybe just a couple stories we read or hear, maybe something we saw on the internet, and an anecdote from our cousin Larry. But this approach can lead us to draw the wrong conclusions. Suzanne, I understand you had an interesting conversation with someone on the front lines of all this confusion. Yeah, this week I talked with Dr. Barker Bazell. He's a statistician at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Oh, man, I just had a flashback from college, crunching numbers from data tables into long equations and testing for statistical significance. Well, he says it's actually not boring at all. Biostatisticians not only crunch numbers, but they also design research studies, like clinical trials in medicine. And then, of course, they analyze and interpret the results scientifically. They have to know quite a bit of math, as well as biology, but most of all, they need to have a rock-solid grasp of how the scientific method works. A number of years ago, Dr. Bazell developed an interest in complementary and alternative medicine. Okay, you mean like acupuncture and homeopathy? Sure, and things like chiropractic, meditation, and even prayer when they're used to treat medical conditions. Like, for instance? Well, you name it. Chronic pain, depression, even cancer. Millions of people turn to complementary and alternative medicine, often when conventional medicine fails to improve their health. And Dr. Bazell spent five years designing and overseeing a number of studies investigating the clinical effectiveness of these therapies. These were high-quality, placebo-controlled studies funded by the NIH. And while doing this, he also had the opportunity to review dozens of research papers on the subject. Okay, and? During this time, he started to notice an interesting trend. In almost every study, the treatment relieved people's symptoms no better than a placebo. Okay, for the benefit of our listeners, placebos are inactive substances or sham treatments that are given to one group in a study. They're sugar pills. Researchers use them because people's symptoms often go away simply because they're receiving treatment at all. So the researchers give them to some of their study participants and see how those patients do compared to the ones who got the real medicine. Exactly, and their standard practice for any reputable medical trial. And after seeing all these studies that failed to produce promising results, Dr. Bazell started to get interested in whether any of these therapies actually work. So he recently took on a rather ambitious project. What I tried to do is answer a really big question, a question to evaluate the whole field. That is, do any complementary alternative medical therapies work better than a placebo? Okay, so he wasn't just doing one study testing whether acupuncture can reduce my back pain. He's looking at the whole field? That's right. What he did was synthesize the evidence from high-quality, placebo-controlled clinical trials of these therapies. Then he systematically analyzed all this data to see if the therapies were any better at relieving people's symptoms than placebos. And? The results were, I think, quite definitive. I think complementary and alternative medical therapies are nothing more than cleverly packaged placebos. Wait, did he say none of them work? Not exactly, but they don't work any better than placebos. The placebo effect is well documented, and basically, if you believe something is going to work, it often does. Scientists have even begun to explain how all of this works in the brain. The placebo effect activates the brain chemical dopamine, 
which increases the neural activity of a small area of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, which in turn makes us feel better, at least for a little while. But it doesn't work for everybody. Dr. Bazell says that just like placebos, some of these therapies work temporarily, but they don't have lasting effects. Okay, so why do some people swear by these therapies? Well, Dr. Bazell explains it like this. Most chronic conditions wax and wane. Some conditions cure themselves and completely disappear. But if you keep trying a different therapy until the symptom does disappear, then the last one you tried was the miraculous cure. Okay, so once again, uh, science comes in like a giant wet blanket and ruins everybody's fun. What does he say to people who think that science should just stick to regular medical therapies and leave herbs and crystals alone? Well, the way Dr. Bazell sees it, these treatments are a multi-billion dollar industry, so people deserve to know how well something works if they're paying good money for it. In my job description, I owe it to the public that pays my salary to give them the evidence and let them choose for themselves. That's not to say that every conventional medical treatment has been validated by good scientific research either. More work needs to be done making all medicine evidence-based. But Bazell says in the case of alternative medicine, the work has been done and the verdict is in. I think the book is closed on complementary and alternative medical therapies, which is a rare thing in science. I would say that we should distribute the close to a billion dollars that has been allocated to the National Center for Complement and Alternative Medicine to the, the other NIH institutes that actually try and have a chance at curing the disease or managing symptoms and close the book on alternative medical research. Sometimes, believe it or not, more research is not indicated, and we've reached that juncture for this field. Thank you, Dr. Bazell, and thank you, Suzanne. Well, this week we had a question about another topic that's caused quite a bit of confusion over the years. The causes of autism are still not fully understood, leaving many people confused about its origins. Listener James of Sherman, Texas, emailed to ask whether there's any truth to all the rumors out there that either the measles vaccine or a vaccine preservative called thimerosal causes autism in children. We turn to Dr. Richard Judelson, a pediatrician at the Erie County Department of Health in New York. He says upon an exhaustive review of the evidence, U.S. health officials came to two conclusions. The first was there is no evidence to support a causal relationship between the administration of MMR vaccine and autism. And the second one was similar wording, no data to support a causative relationship between thimerosal and autism or developmental delay. He adds that vaccines continue to prevent thousands of deaths every year. We just tend not to notice because we're used to people not dying of smallpox or being paralyzed by polio all around us. But despite the enormous success of vaccination programs, it seems that this distrust of vaccines is alive and well in the popular media. That's right. So much so that people are now studying this scientifically. Really? Yeah. Public health researchers at the University of Toronto recently reviewed more than 150 videos on the topic of vaccination. They found them on the popular video sharing site YouTube. And they found that over half the videos presented either a negative message about vaccinations or an ambiguous one. And almost half of them even contradicted national vaccination guidelines. Right. Well, on YouTube, every opinion, whether it's informed or not, gets equal treatment. You just have to hope people don't turn to YouTube for medical advice. 
But I understand another difficulty in conveying even accurate authoritative information about public health may lie right in our own brains. Suzanne, what's that about? University of Michigan researchers recently conducted a study on this. They asked a bunch of volunteers to read a flu vaccine flyer from the CDC. It lists both facts and myths about the vaccine. Then the researchers tested how well they remembered the information they read. What they found is that people were pretty good at remembering which statements were true and which were false immediately after they read the flyer. But when tested just 30 minutes after reading it, volunteers actually mistook 15% of the false statements about the vaccine as being true. They've done other similar studies, and they've come to the conclusion that the very act of presenting a myth as false exposes us to that myth. And over time, the more familiar we become with it, the more likely we are to think it's true, even when it's not. Our brains just don't necessarily remember details, like the fact that it was false. And if the information came from a credible source like the CDC, we're even more likely to believe it. Wait, does that mean if we debunk a myth about, the, say, the flu vaccine on this show, we might actually be spreading the myth instead? Well, it's possible. So how do we get around this? Well, for one thing, the researchers suggest presenting people with correct information instead of a double negative, where incorrect information is contradicted. Then the accurate information will be reinforced instead of the myth. But we can also spend some time thinking more critically about what we hear, read, and see before making inferences and coming to conclusions. I talked to Dr. Bazell about this, and he thinks we need to change how science is taught. I think that we can and we should in our scientific education emphasize the methods of science and how science deals with these problems more than the knowledge that science gleans. Thank you for that report, Suzanne. And speaking of how we learn things, we'll switch gears now to a learning tool that's shown itself to be very effective at teaching over the past few decades. But the subject it teaches so well is not what you'd find in school. Our New York correspondent Justin Warner has that story. According to some studies, violent video games may increase aggression in children. One of the latest, which involved 2,500 young people, was led by Iowa State University developmental psychologist Douglas Gentile. He and his father, J. Ronald Gentile, an emeritus professor of educational psychology at the University of Buffalo, have an intriguing explanation for their results. We found that video games in general use many of exactly the same techniques that the very best teachers in the world use. Some of them are things like, you know, the game has a very clear objective, and they're set at multiple and increasing difficulty levels and they adapt to the pace of every individual learner. In fact, he says many of the latest games actually take note of each player's skills and change the game accordingly. While the Gentiles are concerned about the violent video game's apparent success in teaching, they also suggest that educators steal some of the game's teaching techniques to create new learning tools for the classroom. Thanks, Justin. Well, that's all for this week. Next week, we'll talk about health, from the health of the planet to the health of your skin. We'll tell you why lead poisoning may still be causing brain damage in this country, and we'll update you on the the state-of-the-art in prosthetics research. Until then, for a healthy dose of science, tune into the Science Update Podcast Daily Edition. We've got a new story about science every day, Monday through Friday. You can find it on our website or at iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society.